All right. Wow. Okay, so certainly our hearts are prepared to hear from God today. If, if not, there may be a tweaking in the heart that needs to be done here. Um, that, was, that was fantastic. Thank you guys very much. Um, <clears throat> I want to make sure that um, uh, you know exactly what's going to be going on in a couple of weeks. So each, typically our leadership board meets every other week, and, um, and this for through this season, um, we have met every week because things are changing so quickly. It's been pretty amazing. And uh, as many of you know, there have been some loosening on the restrictions as far as churches meeting and, and stuff like that. And so um, we're, we're trying to react to some of that kind of stuff. And here's our, our idea is that still um, over the next through the month of May, that the main focus of what we're going to be doing is still the live service. That's still going to be the main thing we're doing. It touches the most people, and it reaches out to the biggest population, it seems, etc. Um, but, but, here's the plan. Starting on May 17th, we will be hosting a couple of hundred people in the room um, uh, for the 10, this 1030 service. And so, um, there's going to be ways through that you're going to get emails and stuff communicating about this. You will need to register. The way the plan at this point is, is that we'll be registering. You'll register for one of those three weeks in May. You can only register for one of them to bring you and your family to be in here. And so, again, for my generation, okay, so my generation, I think there's a way that we can engage with what we're doing here. Still, so much <clears throat> of our focus is going to be on this, um, on the live uh, streaming and all that kind of stuff. That's, again, where most of our people will be. So what we're going to be thinking of it in these terms, if you've all, and you've probably always wanted to do this, um, is that we're going to have, uh, we're going to be doing this before a, some of you already know, a live studio audience. That's exactly how we're going to engage with this. And so you're going to get to be, if you'll register and you can sign in and bring your family, we'll have the room set up so that there's ways that you can easily distance from people and that kind of stuff and, <laughs> and take care of all those precautions. But that's the idea. So May 17th is the Sunday that will start. Sometime between now and next Sunday, there will be an opportunity to begin registering. And again, um, if listen, if we get near the day and, and there's not many people registered or whatever, because we don't know where everybody's heart is, the, the survey that we sent out indicates that about half of us who filled out the survey are willing to kind of engage in this, that half are willing to start trying to spread out a little more, and about half aren't, and that's, that's totally fine, and there's no, there's no issues with any of that. So that's going to be the plan. I want you to have that in your mind. Again, that's May 17th. That's the week after Mother's Day. Next week, Mother's Day, heads up, next week is Mother's Day. Uh, but next week, Mother's Day um, is, uh, is going to be, we're going to have the normal 1030, it's going to be closed. The only people here will be the people who are running the show, so to speak. And then, but remember, at 9:30 you can drive in and, and park, and we'll have a fun service there. Um, okay, so have that in your mind, and then be watching for that email that's going to say, "Here's where you click to go register." It'll also be in that section on our website that talks that's that's for the quarantine stuff. All right, so that's what we're going to be doing. It is exciting to get to do this. Who knows? We'll try it for the month of May, and um, we may all be tuckered back in our homes in June, or we may all be out in June, and only God knows, and that's fine. Um, as long as He knows what's going on, we can be okay with it. So that's, uh, that's how we'll be engaging with this. So hope you got that. You can spread the word on that. That's going to be, again, 
starting on May 17th, 24th, and 31st, you get the opportunity to come be part of the live studio audience for the uh, South Spring Baptist Church live, uh, live show. All right, good. Um, again, thank you guys for preparing us for diving into this. This is one of those awesome passages in the Bible that is taught and taught and taught, and there's so much here, and we're going to get partway through it and end it at a very intentional place. But you can remember that last week in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2 ended with Nebuchadnezzar praising Daniel with being excited about knowing, um, knowing about this dream and understanding what the dream is and understanding that, that he himself, Nebuchadnezzar, was representing this head of gold in this image. And today we're going to see what, what I think the reason the Bible connects these two things right next to each other, because there's a long gap between them, is, is partially so that we will recognize there is a connection between these two. Here we have in Daniel chapter 3, so Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now some texts um, indicate that there's about a 16-year gap between this event and the dream of chapter 2. The oldest and most trustworthy texts don't have that, um, but that doesn't mean it's not accurate. It, it may be accurate. The best evidence is probably that there's at least a dozen years between these two chapters and maybe as much as 16, 17 years. So what's going on here? We start with Nebuchadnezzar has built um, a statue, some kind of statue, an image. And the statue is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. When I uh, was out at Pine Cove and taught through this section um, and was teaching this, and I read that, and our architect on staff, Kirk Atchison, immediately said, well, I guess we know now why you can't go see it now. And I was like, I'm sorry, why? And he said, <laughs> something that's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide is not going to stand for very long. Like, that's just, that's just not how that works. And so, um, so let's, I, that, that really struck me. So let's look at some options here. We have the Sam Houston Monument um, that probably many of you have driven past. Um, the Sam Houston Monument, just to give you a sense of scale of how big a statue this is, the Sam Houston Monument is 67 feet tall. Um, and quite wide, obviously, at the base. I mean, it's, it's not even a narrow base at all. 67 feet tall um, and probably at least 25, 30 feet at the base to give you a sense of scale. Maybe the best example that's similar in our world today is Christ the Redeemer. Um, the Christ the Redeemer statue is 98 feet tall by 19 feet at the base. So that's, that's close. It's about the same height, but it's, but it's again... It's more than twice as wide at the bottom, and already looking at that, it's hard to imagine that being that tall and yet being half, again, um, narrower at the base. So, so something's going on here that's kind of interesting. No one really knows how to explain this, um, just that we get this imagery and, and are taught this to understand. But So you're talking about a statue that's about this tall, and you see the people in the picture. I mean, you can see the little tiny people in the picture. That's Something that's, that's 90 feet tall is, is big. It's a tall statue, and again, narrow at the base. And it's in a plain outside of Babylon, in the region of Babylon, called the Rampart. At least that's the best guess for what Dura is, is the Rampart. 
which probably means it's near to the walls of Babylon. It is intriguing. It's not in a temple. It's too big to be in a temple. Um, And so it's out near the field so other people can see it, and so massive crowds can gather. So in a field probably near the walls of Babylon, um, King Nebuchadnezzar sets this up. Now, if you imagine a statue that big, the statue is gold. Now, certainly that does not mean a solid chunk of gold. Um, Certainly that's going to be referencing what everyone did at that time. But even just plating this thing with gold, even just thin gold plates over all of it, would still be massively heavy and massively expensive. Um, it was, it's a fascinating picture. So, so here's what's interesting. Who is this? We don't, we don't know what Nebuchadnezzar, what the image is. It doesn't tell us. Is it just an obelisk like, um, like the Washington Monument is maybe? Or is it, is it a statue of a person? Is it, some people think that it's probably a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, which I think makes a certain amount of sense. I think, and we even talked about on the podcast, I think, um, from Friday, the idea that ne- this may be Nebuchadnezzar's defiance of the dream. So he's all excited about hearing about the dream, but notice Nebuchadnezzar doesn't now build a dream, doesn't now build a statue of a person with a gold head and a silver chest and then bronze waist and iron legs. Instead, Nebuchadnezzar builds an entire statue made entirely made uh, or outside extendedly plated in gold. As if Nebuchadnezzar is saying, No, there's not going to be any other kingdoms after me. That's this is it. I, I'm it. It's the whole statue is going to be me. It's going to be gold. It's going to be Babylon. Maybe so. I think Paul referenced that in the podcast. Um, is, it, is it a god? Is it Marduk? Um, is, it, is it Nimrod, who we talked about last week? We really don't know. I think one of the cool things about the Bible not telling us specifically what it is, is it allows us to put our idol in the spot. What is our idol? What are our images that we put in there? We'll talk more about this as we go through this. But one of the things for us to remember is that, is, that, is that one of the tragedies about creating idols, about creating images, the idea of the, the image of God, we usually don't put idols in place of the image of God now because we are the image of God, but sometimes we worship other things like that. So let's talk for a minute about this idea of images um, when you, in the Bible, in the, especially in the Hebrew mindset, when you hear the word image, you're going to be thinking one of two things, either idol, which you're not supposed to have images, or making no graven images of God and worshiping those idols, or you're going to be thinking about the fact that man is created in the image of God. And Jesus references that very clearly, um, that a beast, at least a big part of what it means to be created in the image of God is about possession, the fact that this image belongs to Caesar. How do you know? Because it has the image of Caesar on it. Um, it's not that it's wrong, it's that at a fundamental level, that's who owns it. Versus humans, we bear the image of God, and therefore we are His. So we should give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God. Well, we give to Caesar his coins with, with money on them, that's totally fine. But, but our whole lives, our whole existence, our whole being, our whole identity is what we give to God. And so um, that's, that's the picture being created. Isn't it sad that one of the things humans want to do is to create an image and worship it. When, when it would make more sense, literally humanism, worshiping humans would make more sense because at least we're the image of God. The image that we create is not an image of anything meaningful. Um, it's clear that in Isaiah that God's, God's disdain for idolatry has to do with how foolish it is, how nonsensical it is. Listen to what, um, what God speaks through Isaiah in Isaiah 44. He's talking about 
Um, somebody goes and gathers some wood. Starting verse 13, another shapes the wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts a cedar for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. And he plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and he warns himself and he also makes a fire to bake bread and he also makes a god and worships it. There's a lot of sarcasm in this passage. He makes a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat, roasts wood, roasts, uh, roasts or roast, and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, oh, I'm warm. I have a fire. The rest he makes into a god, into a graven image, and he falls down before it and worships and prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Same piece of wood. That's the point that the writer of Isaiah, that Isaiah here is making, that, that God is, is saying, Listen, you, you, you planted a tree and you raised a tree. You're the one who planted the tree. You're the one who raised this tree. You're the one who cut down the tree. You then cut the tree into parts, and half of it you use to cook your stew and eat your stew, and the other half, you carved it into a shape, and then you put it in your house, and then you worshipped it. How exactly does that make sense? It's the same piece of wood. You're the one who took the piece of wood, and you're the one who did something with it. Why do you ask it to deliver you? You created it. It's, it's the level of absurdity in worshiping idols is, is pretty huge. The foolishness of idols and images. But we, we love images. In Revelation, the false prophet will set up an image that speaks and condemns those who don't believe in the false prophet. We love to worship images. So our job is to represent him and his purpose. We are his ambassadors. We, people are supposed to look at us and see him. So then why do we seek purpose in setting something up other than Him? One of the tragedy of idols is that we are giving up our very role, the image of God, and we're giving it to a piece of wood or perhaps a piece of plastic and processors or perhaps a piece of paper. E even sillier, when we print out money and then we call it God, we print, we, we create, we craft um, technology, and then we, we worship it. I heard a, an a, uh, anthropologist years ago say that if our culture was buried in a volcano, that years from now people would come and assume that the television was, God, was, the, was the house God. Because everything, every, the main room is all built entirely around the television. Everything is, is meant to, to be like it's wrapped around, to face it, like we're looking to it for messages from God or whatever, and that, that would be the assumption that we have. And money, man, I'll just tell you, money is one of those things. It, it does not pay to think about things too long. Just, don't, just whatever you do, don't, don't spend any time thinking about the fact that all of our livelihoods are dependent on a piece of paper that is worth exactly whatever someone else says it's worth with nothing else except that we all agree that it's worth that. That's, just, just don't think about it. It's not smart because um, it'll, it'll, it'll make you scared. So just, again, let's move along. Verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come up to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials before the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Man, you know who else we love to worship? Celebrities. There's somebody else we really love to worship. It was fascinating to me years ago, only, only Christians, only a few Christians caught this, but it was fascinating to me that, that we actually called the TV show where we tried to create someone, turn someone into a celebrity. We called it American Idol. Um, and and it's, a, it's fascinating to me that that's a that, like, that's just proclaimed now. Like, we're like, we're going to embrace the fact that we're trying to raise up idols for us to worship. Um, we love celebrities. I think probably th- what struck me was that in America, the golden statue out in the middle of the plains probably looks something like this. Nice golden statue that we could all fall down and worship. There's certainly a whole population of people who worship this golden statue. Anyone with power. We love to idolize anyone with influence and power. We love to idolize who we, those that we consider smart or successful or well-educated. We, we love that. We love idolizing and worshiping human achievement. Now, we're going to talk about the fact that there's nothing wrong with Nebuchadnezzar setting up a statue, even a gold one. There's nothing wrong with him having an unveiling of it. There's nothing wrong with him calling a whole bunch of people to come and go, wow, Neb, man, that is an awesome statue, right? Dang, man, that's crazy cool. Love it. Nothing wrong with any of that. There's nothing wrong with human achievement, human achievement, human technology, human financial delusions. None of that is wrong necessarily. It's just, it's not worthy of worship. And that's the problem here. That's the line that is crossed here and that in our own lives we have to be constantly watching for. So this is going to be Nebuchadnezzar's big moment. I mean, you're talking about a PR event, uh, extraordinary. So he's, he's, he's gathered all these people. By the way, you notice that there's going to be a lot of repetition in this chapter, that a lot of Hebrew writing, a lot of... There's kind of a combination here of, uh, of Hebrew history that, that needs to be able to be repeated easily. And so when you have like passages that list everybody and then it does it again and then it does it again, that allows you to memorize it a little more easily and have the same things again and again. Um, for sure. Also, just the fact that it's, it's pointing out everyone who's anybody, anybody who's anybody, all the who's who, they're going to show up for this event. Everybody's going to gather up here. This is Nebuchadnezzar's big moment, his, his, his PR moment. These are his leaders are all there. He had made a giant statue that they were going to come and check out, and then he was going to tell them to worship it. Um, and so, this is a, do we, follow, do we follow the leaders? Yes. Do we follow them blindly? No, because there's a higher authority. We talked about that last few weeks. And Nebuchadnezzar places himself as the, at the highest point of all, and he's about to instruct the whole world. Literally, he's about to make a, he's about to make a proclamation, and the herald is gonna, heralds are going to go out and make this proclamation from Nebuchadnezzar. And the, the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, this is the big moment. Did we get the bagpipes in there? 
They go up there. I, at least the first picture. What's good? The first picture. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is Attorney General William Barr on the bagpipes. I, I was just fascinated. Okay, cool. I'm back to the back to the facets. All right. All right, so all together and all at once. That's the plan. All together, everyone, all together, the whole world. So they, the herald has been sent. And when they say the whole world, they actually mean something rather similar probably to the whole world. They got the, world out, the word out to everybody. This would have taken a long time. But remember, it's been a dozen years or more. So the herald gets out to everybody. When you hear this, these, all these musical instruments, and we're going to get that list a couple more times before we're done. All of these, so we, we guess at these instruments, we don't know exactly what they mean. The bagpipe probably didn't look like just exactly like Scottish bagpipes, but we don't know. But that's the plan. All together and all at once, we're going to set up this big moment. Whatever or whoever else you've been worshiping before, now, right now, you stop and you worship this. Whatever you've worshiped, you're going to stop for a few minutes. Whoever you've worshiped, we're going to stop for a few minutes. This, there's this moment, like, like this stands out to me, will probably stand with me for a long time, that we happen to be, my family and I happen to be in Israel when they do their Memorial Day service. And their Memorial Day service is that, if I remember correctly, it was twice during that day, but we, we, were, we experienced one of them, when for one minute the entire nation stops. And they all know when it's coming. And I mean the entire nation. Every car in the middle of the street stops. Even on the freeways, stops. The cars stop, they're turned off, they're put in park, the door is open, everyone in the car gets out and stands next to the cars for one minute. And no one speaks. There's no noise. It, it was an awesome experience. I'd love for us to steal that in America. It's such a beautiful, awesome, uh, terrifying kind of experience. This is meant to create something like that, except the opposite. It's massive noise. At a certain moment, on a certain day, everyone's going to do it. Everyone else is going to watch it. Everyone else is going to read it. Oh, wait, that's not talking about us. This is where we come into we run into this, is that we want to be a part of what everyone else is doing all together and all at once. If it's something we've worshipped or whatever, the fear of punishment and peer pressure are very powerful. When we see everyone else doing something, we want to do it. When everyone else is watching something, we want to do it. When everyone else is reading it, we want to do it. Every few years, some worldly book, sometimes even pornographic book, comes out and Christians will read it because we don't want to be left out of reading it. Therefore, I must read it. I must be part of whatever that, that, that it is. I don't want to be left out. I don't want to be the only one who can't talk about it, who hasn't done it. Social media has proven without any doubt that peer pressure isn't just for teenagers. It is, it is a massive, powerful force for adults as well. The, it is amazing to me um, who, is, who is not very moved by the crowd. I'm moved by very specific people's leadership. I, I'll explain that someday. But um, but is not moved very much by the crowd. It has been amazing to me because the vast majority of people are more moved even generally, and we see this, this thing going on, in, on on social media where somebody's having a great time or they're doing a great job with their kids or they're doing this great activity with their kids. And so they may have done that activity for 15 minutes and they post a picture of it and somehow we have, oh, I'm totally failing with my kids because right now when I'm reading that I'm not doing some great activity. And that's just not how reality works we have this pressure put on us to conform to what everybody else is doing, good, bad, or indifferent. So, that's the idea. Everyone's going to bow. Everyone's going to bow. Verse 8, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Now, it's always easy to accuse the Jews. There's a reason for that. One is, they have this nasty habit of not doing what everyone else is doing. 
And throughout history, even if the vast majority of even they do, some of them often don't. It's because they serve a God higher than the God who, who you, whatever it is you're wanting them to serve. And sometimes they won't be a part of it. They're not interested in being a part of it. And so anybody who doesn't, isn't willing to play along isn't going to be liked. And throughout history, there's been some versions of that. Anyway, so the Chaldeans declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So, this is one of those funny things where the Chaldeans come to him and they say, Hey, you said this, didn't you? Didn't you say this? Verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. So you, you just thought the modern-day media exaggerated reports like this. It's been going on for a long time. They pay no attention. Now, now is that realistic? Do they pay no attention to Nebuchadnezzar? Of, of course not. They followed his instruction every, probably every single time he's ever called on them to do anything. Because he's been the highest authority. Now, he has made a decree that requires a higher authority check-in. And it hasn't gone well. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods. Again, Nebuchadnezzar has known this for a long time. He knows they don't serve his gods. And Nebuchadnezzar would not have particularly cared. They don't have to serve his gods. That's not how the ancient world worked. That would not have been a big deal. They pay no attention to you. Lies. They don't serve your god. No, that's not news. Or worship the golden image that you have set up. Oh, now we're at the point. So, in other words, Nebuchadnezzar's big PR moment, someone's messing it up. For most of humanity, worshiping one god didn't offend any of the others. They were all gods, idols. I think everyone kind of looked at it as tongue-in-cheek and at the same time realistic, and no one really knew the theology of it was not very deep, and it's kind of ridiculous to read some of the old stories, and they don't make a lot of sense. And and no one was engaging with this at a deep theological level, it doesn't feel like. There was certainly a, there was not really a principle of having no other gods before me. And certainly there was no instruction to make no other idols or graven images. But there was one group who held to this weird ethic, the Jews. The same crowd, by the way, this is, this is kind of important and probably is important. The, the timeline on this is really tough to know for sure. But remember, Nebuchadnezzar, the, when Nebuchadnezzar came and, and took um, Daniel's, Daniel from Israel. Remember, that was the first of three exile experiences. Um, the, the Nebuchadnezzar was going to have to go back a couple of times and conquer the Jews again when they would get a little high and mighty or throw the, try to throw off the yoke of Babylon or whatever. Many of the commentaries that I read said this experience, the raising up of this golden image, may have been connected with having gone and defeated the Jews again. And so it may be that, that this is the fact that, the, that these Chaldeans keep referencing the Jews. They may, be, they may be hitting a sore spot for Nebuchadnezzar here, that he may be frustrated with the Jews because of their tendency to rebel, and they've done that. Maybe that's what's going on. The same crowd that he had likely just come back from suppressing, tyrannical rulers never liked the Jews. No matter how many of them submitted, there were always some of them who would not submit. 
He'd put those men in a position of power and authority, and now this is how they were going to show their appreciation. They're not going to bow for his idol. They're messing up his moment. He set up the perfect moment. Crowds, music, announcements, the show, and the image. This does not sit well with Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 13. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then look at this last line that Nebuchadnezzar says. This is evidence that this, is, this has nothing to do with Nebuchadnezzar's theology. This has nothing to do with Nebuchadnezzar being offended on the part of the statue or whatever gods. Nebuchadnezzar is offended because Nebuchadnezzar has been crossed. It's such a great evidence of the, of the dangerous and inappropriate aspect of masculine anger or of even just, even just anger that comes in the hands of power. You didn't do it the way I wanted. Um, not the right way. There's an anger, appropriate anger with saying this wasn't done rightly or morally or ethically. That's one thing. But to say this wasn't done the way I wanted it done isn't it interesting that Nebuchadnezzar now knows the God of the Jews to be a God who reveals mysteries, but he clearly does not yet understand God as a God of authority, a God of power. But Nebuchadnezzar's theology is such that he doesn't recognize any gods as truly having authority. Because look at what Nebuchadnezzar says this. It says here, If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar has just set himself up as the God of gods, the king of the gods. I kept thinking about how do you deliver that kind of a line? This is very much a, a go ahead and make my day. Or a, I went through a list of them like, I'm your huckleberry type of line, right? I'll be back. Um, my name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to, I, I, or I find, my, of course, my personal favorite, I find your lack of faith disturbing. Like this, this is such a, a, a clear threat to the well-being of these young men or now men. It's aggressive. It's inflammatory. It's dripping with condescension. And it is built out of the gold of pride. I think we're supposed to understand that a 90-foot-tall, 90-foot-wide gold image is the God of pride because it's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. It's, it's something that can't stand. And you have to, in order to, to make it good, you've got to throw a big party and you've got to require all types of response to it. And people have to do it the way you want it done. And so I think this is, a, this is a, an idol to Nebuchadnezzar's own pride, whatever it is. It's just dripping with that, which God will save you from my hands. So again, picture this moment. Now, I don't know if this is in his private chambers and there's just the Chaldeans and these three. Growing up, I always pictured this as Nebuchadnezzar called these three men out onto the plains of Dura and there are thousands upon thousands of people who have gathered. And all of these people bow and these three guys are still just standing there. 
and, and that that word gets to Nebuchadnezzar. That doesn't really fit the narrative of the, of the story super well, but, but we're going to go with that picture that some version, at least emotionally, that's what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone bows, and these three guys are still just standing there. So they get called up. Nebuchadnezzar confronts them. He says, what God will save you from my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Dang. That doesn't sound dangerous. That is dangerous. They are essentially saying, we are under no obligation to give you an answer. Now, this is clearly because they understand there's an authority structure here. And though Nebuchadnezzar is the king of kings, he may even be the king of the gods, but he is not in authority above God. He is not in authority above Yahweh, the one God, the, God, the, the most high God. That's how they see it. We don't have to, I don't have to answer to you. We don't have to say anything to you. We don't have to respond to you at all. I don't need to, we don't, and, or, or another way of understanding this is they're going, listen, we don't have to think about how to answer you. It's okay. You, you, I appreciate that you're giving us some time to think about this, to get this right. We don't need it. The truth is, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So what's going to happen next? I'm going to teach you a little bit more, but we're stopping the narrative right here. I'm stopping here because it doesn't matter what's going to happen next. That's the mistake that sometimes we can make with a story like this, is that we think what matters is the fact that God rescues them, spoiler alert, that God rescues them. That's not the main message here, and certainly it's not the main message at this point in the narrative. It certainly doesn't matter to these three. Remember, we may know how the story is going to turn out because we've seen the VeggieTales or we've seen the Flannel Graph or we've read the Jesus Storybook Bible or, or whatever else. Like we, we know how this story is going to turn out. We've read the Bible and come to church our whole lives. They didn't. They had no idea how this was going to turn out at this point. They knew God could save them, but they did not know whether God would save them. They knew God would deliver them. Well, yeah. I mean, if it was by burning to death that that's how God delivered them, that may be how God delivers them. God's deliverance isn't always a miraculous thing that other people get to see. God's deliverance is sometimes when we finally shuffle off these bodies and we finally get to be free of the sickness or the pain or the exhaustion or whatever else. Like, that's part of what it means to be delivered. And I think they clearly mean that. God will, it's this thing they go through, God can save us. God will deliver us, but he may not save us from you. Regardless, we're not bowing. Man, the amount of, of spine this takes, the amount of courage that this takes to stand before Nebuchadnezzar, who is like God on earth, at least in his own mind, he is more powerful than all the gods of the time, but this is, this is like before. They're not going to defile themselves. They can compliment a statue, but they're not going to worship it. They've already decided what they're going to do. They didn't defile themselves with the food, and they're not going to defile themselves by worshiping this image of gold. So, this is a great reminder to us to understand what faith is. Too often, there even used to be a church that had a sign up that said, faith isn't knowing that God can do it, but that he will do it. 
And I think that's actually exactly wrong. Faith is not knowing that God will do it. Faith is knowing that God can do it and then letting Him be God because He's the one who gets to decide whether He will do it, whatever it is. That's what it means to be Him. That's what sovereignty means. He can do anything. Will He? I guess we'll see. Do we have confidence that what He does will be good? Yes. Do we have confidence that what He does will be just? Yes. Merciful? Yes. Will He deliver us? Absolutely. Will He leave us or forsake us? Absolutely not. Will in this moment we be delivered from whatever suffering we're facing? Maybe. Maybe not. That seems to be not be how He works. God can, but He is God. He may not. Certainly like with the Apostle Paul who begged God to take something from him and God said no. Could God have done it? Clearly. Did He? Did not. Mark 1, 40, 42. This is one of those great moments where we see faith expressed and verse 40, a leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Do you hear that? If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. That's, this is why we pray for when we are sick. It's why we pray when we suffer. It's why we pray when there's difficulties. We come to him and say, Lord, I know if you will, you can. And sometimes God says, I will. And most of us have seen it. And sometimes God says, I'm not going to. And sometimes he says, I'm going to do it in a way that you don't understand. But like with the Apostle Paul, I think whatever it is that the Apostle Paul begged God to take from him, he never did. I think he died with it, whatever it was. That happens. This is because they understand that faith is founded in what we've talked about, this concept of authority. There is a sovereign power and a sovereign authority that God carries. Is Nebuchadnezzar powerful? Yes. He's not the most powerful. Is he the sovereign? Yes. But he's not the most sovereign. We see this again, another one of Jesus' engagements with someone in the crowd, Matthew 8, 5. When he'd entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Is that faith? Notice where it comes from in verse 9. For I too am a man under authority and I have soldiers who are under me. I say to one, go, he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Faith? What the centurion has is a correct understanding of the authority and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Listen, I get authority. I'm a centurion. I have a whole bunch of killers who work for me. I tell them, go, they go. I say, come, they come. I tell my servant, do this, and he does it. You don't need to come to my house. Just say it, and it will be done. Because I understand authority, and you're a man who has authority over this kind of stuff. And Jesus marvels. He looks around, you can imagine looking around going like, no one gets this. How does he get this? None of you get this. And he gets this? Why does none of you get this? No one else in Israel, no one gets this. This is how this works. I can do this. Will I do it? I decide. 
I know what's best. I know what's right. I know what long-term. I have a big picture I'm working on. Do I need to heal this person, this friend of yours? I might. We beg. We ask. We plead. Will he give us the life of a child? Will he give us the life of a sick person? Will he give us the life of a grandparent? Will he, will he take away our suffering and our pain? He might. He can but he is sovereign, and he knows whether he ought to or not. He knows the consequences of doing it and not doing it. Only he gets that. Only he gets whether the right thing to do is to take away suffering from us or not. Only he does. We don't. So, you can imagine this whole, but if not be known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. You can imagine this does not go well with Nebuchadnezzar. He is in a fury. He is threatening them. He is threatening the gods. He is going to kill our heroes. God can save them, but he may not. Either way, they're not going to bow. We evaluate the authority. With, we, we evaluate what the authority is asking us to do. Does it defile us? In other words, does it cause us to do something that would offend the higher authority? Does it put us in conflict with the higher authority? What if Nebuchadnezzar, as I said earlier, what if Nebuchadnezzar had just invited them to come stare at the statue? That wouldn't have been a problem. He commanded them to worship something other than Yahweh, <clears throat> and that's a line. We do our best to follow the highest authority. He says, bow. You say, bow, Nebuchadnezzar. God says, don't. So we don't. When we know, we trust. We faith. Back to the book of John. We are convinced and we follow. He is in charge of the consequences. They may be dire, but we don't shrink back from them. On the podcast, we talked a little bit about, I had just read an article about how one of the things that people are fearful of is that young people, young Christians, are no longer hearing that being a Christian can cost you and will cost you. And so when the first time it costs them something, they're stunned by that and they don't know what to do with it. I mean, we come from a, we come from a, a lineage of faith where people knew the minute they proclaimed Christ, they could end up in front of someone like a Nebuchadnezzar. They could end up in an in a arena eaten by lions, killed by gladiators. We come from a lineage of faith where missionaries in the 1600s and 1700s allegedly would, would pack their supplies in a coffin to go overseas because they knew that's how they were coming home was in a coffin. And the natives weren't going to build them one, so they had to build one and take it with them. I've talked about before that someday when we get offices here, I may have a simple coffin built and propped against the wall somewhere as a reminder to us, this is what we've gotten ourselves into as Christians. The consequences may be dire. We know how this ends, but they didn't. There is a cost. They have counted it, and they're prepared to pay it. This is more than about their social media reputation. This is more than um, holding an unpopular view and the consequences for that. There is a cost to following God. It may be our lives. It's cool to go on an adventure overseas in a mission field. Are we going for the adventure, or are we going to die? When we speak to people, when we stand by biblical views, are we doing that understanding it may cost us our lives? Or are we saying, well, we're doing that so long as it's the pressure is allows us to do it. If things change, and the reason people aren't here, aren't able to meet in church, is for persecution, do we find a way to gather? We're not talking about an agreed-upon thing here where we understand that there are ways. There's nothing that the government has asked us to do that does not fit with what God has called us to do. In fact, if anything, I have found in some ways more opportunities to love the way Christ has called us to love and to check in on people the way he's called us to shepherd them as opportunities are there left and right all the time. 
But just like with the three Hebrew, now not really children, things seem to have worked out so far, but now suddenly they aren't. When things don't work out, what do we do? Beloved children, we take up our cross to follow Jesus. When you take up a cross, you're not going to a picnic. You're going to a crucifixion. And if you're the one carrying the cross, it's your crucifixion. That's what it means to follow Jesus. The fact that it's worked out so well for us so far is a blessing. And hopefully it will. And then one day it won't. And we have to be prepared to pay whatever that cost is. So let's search our hearts for that. Father, we are so grateful for the power of your word. And I'm grateful that we can teach this in such a way that we end the narrative with three boys, three young, now I guess young men, maybe even just men. Three men standing before a king who is infuriated with them and wants them dead. And his wrath is going to explode quite literally into flames. And Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to have the kind of devotion to you that even among all the rest who maybe they, maybe they knelt, these three would not. I pray you give us the example of whatever that is in our lives, the places where we stand, when we need to stay standing no matter what the pressure is, no matter what the fiery darts of the devil are, as we put on your armor, we're able to stand, having done everything we can to stand. God, we know there are plenty of other times when we bow, and that's appropriate. We bow to you, and we bow to your authorities, and we, we bow to what you've called us to. We don't always know, Lord, but I pray that you would give us supernatural insight and wisdom to know when to bow, when to stand, where that is. Help us be humble in our engagement with that. Lord, who we bow to is you every time, and I pray that you would teach us to do that faithfully through the supernatural power of your Holy Spirit because we're terrible at it. According to obedience to your Son and the sprinkling of his blood, and according to your perfect knowledge, Lord, thank you for choosing us in your Son's name. Amen.